Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm delighted to welcome as my guest this week to my podcast, An Apple A Week, Jackie Munro, who is a newly minted Australian politician who was elected as a member of the New South Wales Legislative Council um, at the last um, state election just recently in New South Wales. Jackie holds a Bachelor of International Studies and has worked as a public affairs consultant at a global public relations and communications agency. She worked um, fearlessly with the marriage equality campaign in 2017 and she's worked as a staffer including for Mark Speakman, Speakman who is now the current leader of the opposition in New South Wales and I think uh, you've told me you were delighted to be able to vote for him as the new leader Jackie and prior to that you were female vice president of the Liberal Party of Australia New South Wales division and also women's council president so welcome to my podcast Jackie. Thank you so much for having me Katie. It's fantastic to have you on because you are someone who is a fresh face um, in our leadership. You're only 32. I shouldn't say only 32, but you've done a lot with your life um, in those 32 years. And we know that it takes lots of different types of people uh, to represent our country uh, in the highest levels of government, whether it's state or federal. So it's wonderful to have uh, you representing liberal values in the New South Wales Parliament what does it feel like to be a freshly minted politician? It's really exciting and obviously a huge privilege. And although I don't feel all that young, I do believe that I'm the youngest Liberal woman to be a member of the Upper House in New South Wales. So there's still some way to go to increasing the representation that we have in Parliament in New South Wales. But we also have an amazing young woman, Steph DePasqua, in the lower house, who I believe is 27. So we're still breaking down barriers and it's really exciting to be a part of that. And I actually believe I'm also the first Liberal woman who is part of the LGBTQI community represented in New South Wales Parliament. So, again, it's um, they're not milestones in themselves because, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're representing all groups of people and that's my responsibility as an other house member is all of New South Wales. But I think it is valuable to mark these moments just to note that Liberals can look very different to sometimes what the stereotype might be. Yes. Well, it is. It's about breaking down stereotypes. But, uh, you know, I, I always think it's actually the reason you have diversity, diversity is it brings diversity of thought. Um, and I know when I became a member of Parliament, um, a wise soul said to me, you're not actually a delegate, you're a representative. And when I was a doctor, I would have to represent the needs of my patients, but I didn't necessarily have to be that patient to understand and empathise. So I could care for someone with cancer who, even though I hadn't had cancer, and, you, you know, you look at to the US and not that I support someone like Bernie Sanders, but he got the young vote, even though he's as old as, you know, as Methuselah. 
and um, you know, he can you can be old and represent the young vote, but you need to understand, empathise, and be able to speak for people as a representative. So I'm not particularly into identity politics, but it's great to have diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of background, and I think that's what the the strength of the Liberal Party is: is that we are a party that believes in the power of the individual. So you you, you joined the Liberal Party at age 21, and you really put your hand up to to get in there and get involved in the administrative aspect um, with your leadership roles within the party um, and I have had you know a few interviews recently with people where they're wringing their hands and saying you know we've we've lost the people in some ways as a party uh, it is it, true in government we swing from left to right and back again and in the New South Wales election it did feel like a bit of a it's time election where it had been a long-term government for many terms three terms um, and it was getting to the end of its life in some ways uh, it seems that Don Perrottet put up a great battle. He did it in a really good way. From Victoria, it looked like he was doing it in a way that was sensible, reasonable and, and well-meaning, but also had a sort of sense of gravitas about it because it wasn't, it wasn't fisticuffs. It was about the policy ideas. And I loved taking on gambling reform, the you know, strong approach to climate, um, childcare, which is so important for women. How did you feel being in at that last election, having seen lots of elections come and go? You were in the field for this particular election. How did you find it? I think you're totally right in demonstrating that the policies that our government had were really beneficial and impactful to many groups of people who needed help over a really difficult time, particularly during COVID, of course. And we, we were a government that focused on policy for people. And unfortunately, what we saw at the election was that there were a couple of sound bites that Labor were able to focus on and it gave the campaign a bit of a negative twinge, but overall it wasn't its time factor is what we felt. Unfortunately, now that the Labor government are in, they are working to dismantle some of the excellent policies that the Liberal government put in place. And those are things like our stamp duty reform and land tax, which was designed to make housing more affordable for young people and now under a Labor government is, is actually being wound back. So we have to be really careful to not just defend the legacy of our Liberal government, but actually ensure that the policies that are going forward will be beneficial to the people of New South Wales. And I think something that you touched on earlier around um, representation and leadership versus identity politics is so crucial to making a distinction between what the left and the right stand for. And as a membership-based organisation, the Liberal Party should be a place where people can come and share their ideas and their interpretations of liberal and conservative policies and be able to strengthen the kinds of policy that we then put forward to the general population. But while we... Um, while we have a membership that is skewed in very particular demographics, although those people might be able to sympathise in some way with different other demographics um, that are not their own, we seem to be missing out on that public-facing representation that demonstrates the diversity of what our ideology can actually represent. Like our yeah. ideology is good for people across Australia, not just for a certain cohort that our party is being branded around. But in New South Wales, we now have 42% of the party as women and the parliamentary party, which is fantastic. And um, in, the, in the Legislative Council in particular, in the upper house, we have 
a, a wide range of representatives from different age groups as well as having um, that gender diversity. So there, there is, going back to what you were saying about the campaign, the it's time factor, but I do think that what people are looking for in the end is policy, not identity politics. So while it's good that we've got greater rep rep representation, it's fantastic, and the men's government has put in a cabinet that is 50% women, we still need to make sure that we're getting the policies that will make our state better because if New South Wales isn't a better place for people and women in particular to work in, to have kids in, to enjoy their lives in, then identity politics isn't working. So we need to go back to that core policy platform that, that the Liberals offer, I believe. Mm. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, People have become more tactical in their voting. They're also, you could say, they also have, they're more fickle. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, they can change their mind more quickly um, because, you know, positions or conditions change. I mean, for instance, during the start of COVID, um, our federal government was riding high. And in fact, I think Scott Morrison at that point was the second most popular prime minister um, in the history of the nation or in the history of polling. Um, and then, of course, things you know, slid from there. So people can change their views um, based on all sorts of reasons. Um, but if you don't have a policy agenda that's taking you forward, the wind and the sails, then the holes in the boat, which might be you know, character assassinations or views about the, the, the quality of the party become more, you know, high profile, I suppose. And I, I thought that um, New South Wales did a very good job, or New South Wales Liberal Party or Liberal Coalition Party um, did a very good job making sure that um, there wasn't this massive sweep. So uh, as it's turned out, the Labor government's a minority government. Um, it, you know, there was there, there was no um, gains made by the Teals. Uh, the silver wasn't taken, so to speak. And when you look back to the way that um, it, it held itself as a party but presented good, solid policy, it did end up being mostly a contest of ideas. So I, I think, you know, well done. And there's a lot for the rest of the country to learn about what went right for New South Wales and what we can learn in other um, states around the country. I'd like to turn now to home ownership. Um, I do think it's an incredibly important issue um, for those, you know, sort of opening up a divide of the haves and the have-nots. And that's become particularly problematic as the cost of rent's going up. And that's partly because um, students, international students are returning from overseas. We've got this construction crisis where supply has been a real issue. Construction companies have been crying out that they're about to go under and now they're going under. Uh, the cost of living has been having an impact on them. They were being held over, I suppose, with all of the federal government um, initiatives through COVID. So they were actually able to keep afloat. But I was hearing myself that there was a lot of pressure into the construction uh, industry, which has been um, accelerated by the Ukraine war. It's hard to get the materials they need. Uh, the cost of buildings has gone up enormously. Supply is not keeping up with demand. And then you add in this new issue of students and um, immigrants flooding into Australia. It's a bit of a perfect storm. If you add in, in, in New South Wales, Labor is changing these policies, which were going to be very positive policies for people to get into their own home. What's your view on, on where to from here? Um, and, and you talked about the great policies that you put forward. Can you speak to them a bit about why it's going to be so problem problematic that they're round back, wound back? You're absolutely right. It is a perfect storm. And I think home ownership is part of the private property um, and individual responsibility value or principle that Liberals hold very dear. 
And so being able to address this matter in a liberal way is going to be critical to to furthering um, the choice that people have in the kinds of ways that they live and home ownership or, or rental. So in New South Wales, we put forward as a Liberal government a plan to um, change our stamp duty and land tax system to make sure that housing was more, and particularly for first home buyers, housing was more accessible. So the idea originally is that stamp duty adds a pretty big cost onto an already large deposit that people have to save for. It could be, stamp duty could be in the order of, I mean, depending on that value of the house, of course, but ten dollars to $50,000, maybe $50,000 is um, pretty high for a first home. But these are the extra thousands of dollars that people have to save for, and that could mean years of additional saving that um, people are spending on rent or staying at home in that time. And in that time, housing only gets more expensive. So you've got this sort of compounded cost. So the Liberal government put in place a policy where stamp duty could be removed in favour of a land tax that was ongoing. So stamp duty is a one-off upfront cost when you purchase a new home but a land tax would be a much, much smaller uh, payment that you make annually to the government, which essentially offsets the stamp duty. And the idea was that first home buyers could elect to either pay the stamp duty if they wanted to and get it out of the way if they had those kinds of funds or pay a one-off land tax and um, pay that annually. So we're talking in the order of hundreds to a couple of thousand dollars instead of 10 to 20 to 30 thousand dollars and naturally that increases the the choice that people have and the opportunity they have to buy their first home they don't have to put it off for so long the value of those houses um, is also important so eight hundred thousand dollars for example doesn't get you much in sydney and even greater Sydney, but $1.5 million for your first house, it makes things a little bit more realistic in terms of the the, um, perimeter, essentially, that you're able to buy within. So if you, you know, an $800,000 apartment or house, I mean, an $800,000 house, you'd be spending hours traveling into the city each day to, to purchase a house of that value. So in New South Wales, um, the, the Labor government is reducing the cost of that type of house you're able to buy with stamp duty and land tax. There's questions about whether they will wind back the land tax option altogether. Um, they're essentially looking for ways to raise money. They haven't been able to put forward a plan that generates appropriate revenue for New South Wales through other means, other policies. So it means they're going to have to wind back our policies so that they can take more of your tax, of of the the money that people have saved for a a house. So so Mark Speakman has already said that he will fight those changes as they come. And as you mentioned, the Labor government is in minority at a lower house level and in the upper house, it's a 50-50 split. So they will have to negotiate with crossbenchers across both houses to get any of these changes through. And I think it will be very challenging for them to do that if if independent members and crossbenchers are thinking about their communities. 
Um, and so, you know, one thing about um, getting into your own home, it has, you know, obviously great financial benefits. It gives people that sense of security. It gives them the, the desire to, to sort of grow their, their asset and, and, to, and to invest in their own future. So, you know, as Liberals, we're great supporters of that. And the point about stamp duties help first-time buyers to get over that hump because people, people are paying such high rent, we know they can service their mortgage, but getting over that first-home buyer kind of stamp duty hump deposit and stamp duty together, double hump, you could say, was putting people off. So it's it's a complex issue, the housing market, isn't it, really? Because, you know, interest rates um, play into that, um, supply with, with, with state governments releasing land in order to increase supply, but then resulting in this sort of sprawling urbanisation, which then has with it all the extra infrastructure that you need to build back into that as well. So it's a complex issue, isn't it? It's hugely complex. You already mentioned so many things that are, are feeding into the lack of supply and the challenges around construction and more migrants um, coming to Australia. And there, the, the different levels of government all play very crucial but different but into um intertwined parts so you've got local government around zoning in particular and and planning to an extent you've got state governments around that those issues too particularly planning um and and release of land as you said you've got the federal government which is obviously part of the tax um, framework as well and all of those levels of government have various um kind of national versions of themselves so you've got a a group of state government leaders, like the, the equivalent of um, national cabinet, but for planning ministers, you've got um, you've got rental assistance being provided by Commonwealth government, but rent rental um, and tenants rights are governed by state legislation. So there are all these intertwined and very complex legislative and regulatory systems, which just create layer upon layer of complexity and mean that it's very hard for individuals to navigate or feel empowered within those systems. So what is often just the core of this issue is that we don't have enough supply. How can we actually be getting more buildings built? And unfortunately, the um, dwelling approvals at the moment is declining, which is problematic. Um, we've got We've got homelessness increasing across lots of different age groups and women in particular. Um, historically, the age group of women over 55 has been touted as the fastest growing. I believe now it's around the 30 to 45 mark is the fastest growing, but also kids, people under 12, there's homelessness growing in that area. So there's the, it's a, a full gamut of family to single people in their later ages who aren't able to access the housing market for various reasons. And the, the reality is, um, the University of Sydney did a, quite a good paper on this. The reality is that there has to be a working together of private sector, of government, of social housing providers to actually get the appropriate quantum of stock into the market. And I think there's some good moves in the private sphere in um, targeting particular groups of people, like, for example, for the over 55s market for women in particular, there's an organisation in Queensland that has come together to offer what is essentially share housing arrangements for that group of people. So 
there are innovative ways that you can bring people together and try to address these problems on a shorter term basis, which I think is necessary. But unless there are more advocates and champions within parliaments to actually address these issues, it will be very, very difficult to coordinate all of that work. I know in New South Wales that you've got granny flat laws which enable people to build a second um, property, which helps with densification. Um, you know, the word granny flat's a quite funny one, but, you know, older people, particularly if they're someone who's on their own, they like to have someone else on the property, which means there's a sort of security aspect, maybe a sort of knowing that someone's down at the end of the garden, so to speak. It allows a younger person perhaps to get into one of the, the inner city or, you know, middle suburbs rather than having to compute, commute from a long way out. How have those laws um, gone in New South Wales? We don't have the same ones in Victoria. Have they been positive and successful or not particularly? I think that there is, from um, anecdotal evidence that I've heard from people who have been keen to make the most of um, building granny flats and, and getting extra accommodation and possibly extra income from those builds, that there are still quite tight restrictions on what can be done and when. And the additional cost of regulation around building something like a granny flat on a property can still be quite prohibitive. So the cost that you might be looking at just to submit a DA to your local council could be in the order of $20,000. And the reality is that when you're already seeking to build something that is supposed to be beneficial to the community because you're providing an extra dwelling, that the cost that you would regain um, from renting that out would, would take years and years and years to, um, to make back. So there are still problems with the way that um, those kinds of development applications are administered. and. Again, it's very dependent on where you are. So your local council might take 10 or 30 days to approve your development application, or it may take four or five months to approve. So there are big variances depending on where you live. And there have been attempts to make that more transparent, but local government still doesn't have a great level of accountability, I would say, in, in their administration. So some of the bigger councils, and I live in the city of Sydney, so that council has more transparency, I would say, than most. And um, there is probably more focus on a council like that because it's quite wealthy and there are um, very stable structures, governance structures in place. But when you're going out into regional areas and they don't have as much money coming in, you know, the, the money they're making off land tax and, and um, the the ways that they administer themselves might be much more ad hoc. So I would say it's varied. It's been a varied experience. And, and I actually learned the other day, I do have to do more research into this, but I've heard that banks are hesitant to lend to people who are purchasing properties that are very small. So if you're trying to get in the market with a very small studio apartment, for example, there are actual limitations depending on the square meterage of that property because the banks are more hesitant to, to lend money. So it, it goes to each level again. There's, there's private sector involvement, there's local government, state and federal. So... Yeah, it's always complex, isn't it? The hardest problems that make the headlines are hard because they're complicated. Yeah, exactly right. Well, it's been fantastic um, speaking with you. Thank you so much, Jackie, for taking time out of your busy day. I always like to leave my podcast interviews with asking one final question, 
which is what would you wish for the future? And I often say the next hundred years because then people don't need to say they need to do it. But what they <laughs> you may be around in a hundred years, unlike some other people. I'm <laughs> oh well, medical technology will have to progress rapidly in that case. If you're on the case, please let me know. Um, <laughs> I am. I, I think it goes back to, and you know, maybe it's very typical for a liberal to hark back to Menzies, but. He spoke about the different types of homes that people can inhabit. And you've got homes spiritual, you've got homes material. And, and I think material homes are being, um, I'm not sure if undervalued is quite the right phrase, but we're turning home ownership and land into an asset class rather than an essential need. And it goes back to that private property and individual responsibility that as liberals, we should be encouraging private property ownership because it generates wealth and stability. It generates a sense of um, responsibility for the future and allows people to put down roots, contribute to their communities, have families. And I, what I would hope for the future is that people feel like they have a choice to enter the housing market and to generate that stability in their own lives. I think when people feel like they're priced out, like they don't have a choice, like there is no possible future option for them to own a home, they may feel like they give up and they don't they don't work towards that goal, but they also start turning to government for solutions. And if we're relying on the government to provide housing for everybody, we're, we're going to be sorely disappointed. It's, it's simply not a sustainable way to continue. So having a more a, a simpler housing system that gives people choice and allows them to put down their roots um, with, with homes material, that is what I would hope for the future. Well, that's a wonderful way to finish our podcast, and I would hope that is true for so many people going forward. It's a wonderful wish for the future, um, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do.